Today's segment is sponsored by the Dell XPS 13 laptop with an 8th gen Intel Core i7 processor. Experience Dell Cinema's incredible color, sound, and streaming on the Dell XPS 13. It's the laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Learn more at dell.com slash XPS 13. Sponsored by Dell and Intel. This is Recode Media from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Lydia Polgreen, in for Peter Kafka. I'm the editor-in-chief of HuffPost, but I'm here today at Vox Media headquarters in New York to talk to Alan Rusbridger. He's the former editor of The Guardian and the author of several books. His most recent is called Breaking News, The Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now. Alan, welcome to Recode Media. Delighted to be here. So... Alan, this book is part memoir, part rallying cry for a beleaguered profession. And I want to start with a question that speaks to both of those. You began as editor of The Guardian in 1995, which was just at the moment when websites were starting to appear, the internet was becoming a thing. And I'm just curious, casting your mind back, what was top of mind for you as the biggest challenge that you'd face um, as a new young editor? And how quickly did the internet sort of emerge and burst forth as a a primary concern for you? Well, I had a gut feeling. I traveled to America to see the internet because it was difficult to see the internet in 1993. And uh, nobody had a clue. Uh, I remember going to the New York Times and they just didn't believe the internet would ever be used for news. So um, that was how clueless everybody was. But I did have a sort of broad sense that that print days were numbered and the internet, whatever it was, was going to be huge. And I think from the moment that I started editing, I thought this might be the story of my editorship, that that I had to get The Guardian ready to be digital, which is not sure even that was a word we used then. In those early days, it just sort of felt like pure opportunity, um, that this was going to be something very exciting, um, very new, was going to fundamentally transform the relationship between um, publishers and their users. And that seemed like a very positive thing for democracy. Um, When did the peril of this become evident to you um, in terms of the threat that the digital revolution posed to the business models of journalism? Well, Craigslist, I suppose we became aware of Craigslist because that was much more of an American thing than it was a British thing. Um, And again, when I heard about Craigslist, somebody had been to California and came back and said, there's this thing called Craigslist and it's wiping out the the American uh, newspaper industry. Uh, And by the way, it's just about to jump over into the UK it was, again, a moment where we just thought, well, we can't beat that. I mean, and if it's not Craigslist, it'll be something else. And at the point, we owned a paper called the Manchester Evening News, which had for years helped subsidize The Guardian. Uh, and I remember looking at my fellow board members thinking, well, you know, we, we should be selling the Manchester Evening News tonight, if not tonight, tomorrow. And it was the classic legacy owner's dilemma where you thought, well, we can't sell the Manchester Evening News. That's making us lots of money. Um, but we should have sold it, you know, bluntly, because when we finally sold it 10 years later, it was worth, you know, a fraction of what we would have got for it. Yeah, and that's a story that's repeated over and over again in in your book. I mean, one senses this tremendous 
whiplash uh, between uh, journalistic triumph on the one hand, uh, these extraordinary feats of reporting. I mean, the year that The Guardian won a Pulitzer Prize alongside The Washington Post for the NSA hacking, the NSA um, wiretapping stories, um, you also were facing a very, very steep financial loss. And that's got to be a hard thing as editor to be on the one hand Mm. celebrating this great journalistic triumph and on the other hand thinking, my God, where is the bottom? No, it was it was nail biting. I mean, I you know I think back to my predecessors as editors, and it's not that they didn't have hard times or worrying times, but basically the the essentials of of publishing and the economic model that supported it were well known. You know, you you had a certain number of pages and a certain number of adverts, and as long as they were in balance and you had enough readers, it, all the sums add up. And suddenly we were in a world where it wasn't clear where any of the money was going to come from. The advertising was leeching away. The readers at that point didn't want to pay. And you had to invest heavily in digital to have a chance of surviving. I mean, luckily, The Guardian is owned by a trust, uh, which is a, effectively a non-for-profit, uh, non-profit trust. Um, so we didn't have to make the kind of returns that we would have had to have done if we had shareholders, and that made, made we could think a little more long term about it. Uh, but it was frightening, and 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 none of us knew where it was going to end, and arguably none of us still do. I think you have been one of the most avid proponents of keeping journalism, um, at least as much journalism as possible, outside of paywalls, um, and this became a, a critical choice and a juncture for The Guardian. Um, You know, the New York Times, everyone said it would fail. It would, you know, shrink in the face of places like HuffPost by putting up a paywall. It would lose its audience and lose its base. Now it's, you know, with all reflection, it seems clear that the paywall really saved the New York Times. Uh, Walk me through your thinking in, in why both in terms of business and in terms of the mission, it was important to you that, that The Guardian not be behind a paywall. Well, one thing is that we were a tiny paper. You know, we had 400,000 readers in, in print uh, uh, and we were in a tiny country and our readers weren't very wealthy. Uh, and uh, we would have ended up as a as a even tinier version digitally um, had we rushed into a paywall. Uh, then came the realization after nine eleven that most of our readers were actually abroad um, in America or the rest of the world. And if you wanted to grow in scale to have a chance of getting enough advertising revenues, there was no way of moving to America or the rest of the world and trying a paywall. So there were those practical considerations. And we're now, we, I say we, they are now, I think, 160 million browsers a month. So a completely different scale from the little, you know, what was the Manchester Guardian. But... uh, there was another question that we actually put to the readers in 2012, which was to say, look, we've, I think we are going to have to ask you for money and let's try the idea of two different models. One is to say you can pay The Guardian in order to have the exclusive right to read The Guardian so that nobody else can but you, and that's the journalism as a private good. Or uh, you can pay for The Guardian in order for The Guardian to be available throughout the world as a reliable news source if you think that's what the world needs. And the group of Guardian readers we kept testing that question on really liked the second model. And last 
week, The Guardian announced they now have a million people who are willing to give The Guardian money in order that other people can read it. So it's, it's a kind of sort of philanthropic approach to news. And I think that's amazing. I think it's wonderful that, that, that people are prepared to see journalism as a kind of public service that needs to be there and accessible by all. I think that there are people who, um, while admiring your journalism tremendously, feel that perhaps The Guardian under your leadership moved too slowly to diversify its revenue. Um, what, what, what's your response to that notion? Oh, probably, you know. I mean, <laughs> the book is littered with mistakes we uh, all made. And if you even got 50% of the decisions right, and there were people who thought we were going too fast, there were people who thought we were going too slow. Uh, we were very heavily dependent on print classified advertising. Um, and, you know, it's easy to say, as some people said, you know, shut down print and just move into digital. But we just simply, we weren't Rupert Murdoch. We didn't have you know, bottomless pockets. So, yes, I'm sure we made all kinds of mistakes on the way. And 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 rocky periods, you know, 2016 was rocky. But from what I see from the outside now, there's a billion quid in the bank, which is um, the, the endowment. They say they're going to break even this year. And readers are, a million readers are, are paying in some form of, or another. And it's open to the, to the whole world. So, you know, there's never a moment in which you say, great, we we did it. And it's not a model that's going to work for everyone else. But for The Guardian, it seems to be working. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this with Alan Rusbridger. His new book is called Breaking News, The Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now. Do you ever wonder how we're streaming millions of movies on demand or doing our banking from the beach? And how are we watching a live mission from Mars? Smart business minds dreamed these ideas, and Amazon Web Services is how they built them. With the broadest functionality and the most experience, the leading enterprises trust the AWS cloud to build the next big idea. Are you ready to build it? Learn more at awsishow.com slash podcast. And we're back with Alan Rusbridger. You mentioned Rupert Murdoch, so let's dive into some of your uh, some of your greatest hits of your guardianship. Um, at one point, I, I believe it was maybe in 2009, Nick Davies came to you uh, with what sounded like a very hot story. Um, let, let's talk about phone hacking. How did that story come about, and um, how did it change the media? Well, um, you remember one journalist had gone to jail for, for hacking into the into the royals, and the story had been that that was a, a lone rotten apple. And the story went to sleep for a couple of years, and then Nick came to see me and said he had been told that at boardroom level within the most powerful media company in the world, um, there had been a cover-up when they discovered actually there were many reporters doing this, not just one. So this was criminal behavior within a, a, a huge company uh, and a decision to buy silence with money. Well, imagine if that was a car company or an oil company or a bank, what we would do with that. But I think there was some sense that a newspaper shouldn't write about another newspaper. Um, and I knew the moment Nick, we, we, we later called it the heart attack convo, uh, we both knew this was going to be immensely uh, difficult and full of grief and we would come under attack. Maybe we'd, they'd even start hacking our phones. Um, we had no idea what would happen. Um, but we 
we published that story and the whole story from beginning to end took years and and a lot of money, a lot of anxiety. At one point, you reached out to the New York Times um, looking for kind of, you know, moral and collegial support. Uh, and that ended up, you know, with, with, a, with a big story in the Times about the phone hacking. Yes, scandal. well, what happened was, I mean, this was a story about power and Murdoch owned, still effectively does own, 40% of the British press. And because he was so aggressive to those he didn't like, including having private investigators digging into their private lives. What you saw was the police, the parliament, the regulator, and other newspapers watching on the sidelines and not supporting The Guardian in any way, quite the opposite. And it was it was the first part I'd really sort of feared for the democracy of, of, of Great Britain, because I, I would always, always thought there were checks and balances, that, that things would kick in and... Uh, you know, if one bit of the state failed, another bit of the state would kick in. And that's not what happened. And that's why I lifted the phone to Bill Keller at the New York Times and said, look, why don't you send some reporters over here? Because I think if if you published it, they would find it difficult to ignore. And was that the case? Did it have the yeah, impact he's, you'd hoped? He's, it was like the cavalry coming over the, the, the hill. These three amazing New York Times reporters came and we just handed them everything. And they spent about three months, I think, in London. And it wasn't that they broke much that we hadn't broken. But I think the very fact of an American, you know, a great American newspaper saying, yes, actually, this is all true, made it in some way unignorable. You know, it, it's, a, it's a story about, you know, what the press does. It's, the, it's about the sort of the disinfectant value of, of scrutiny. Mm. One pattern that's um, emerged through that emerges throughout the book is this habit that you developed of collaborating with other news organizations. Mm. And journalists tend to be kind of lone wolves, um, or we compete with one another for big scoops. Um, and I, I do think that there's something quite powerful. Um, and, and maybe we could just start by talking about the the, the WikiLeaks example. Um, why why? Did it make sense to do this as a as a kind of joint production with different newsrooms doing different aspects of it, but ultimately sharing? Um, that's not typical behavior in our profession. Well, three reasons. One, the story was global. I mean, there were so many different... I mean, you could have done 180 different editions of the, the WikiLeaks tapes because it was about every country on the, on the globe. Um, and one country couldn't possibly do justice to it. And, and, you know, we're not really in competition with the New York Times, and we, we are at the margins, but, but we didn't really see them as old-fashioned competitors. The second was that no one in history had ever had that number of documents to deal with. Um, I mean, it's more commonplace now, but if you think of the sort of old days of Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers when it was, you know, 2,000 pages loaded into photocopied boxes, um, this was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of documents, if not millions. And we really needed to share the expertise with, with other news organizations who could help us search and help us build the, the search engines. You know, again, nobody at that point had means of searching that number of, of documents. And the third one was the First Amendment, you know, that I thought uh, actually Americans have better protection than we do in Britain. And if we could harness ourselves to the First Amendment in some ways, then that would protect our reporting. 
I'm curious um, what you make of Julian Assange today. I, I mean, I remember when um, when the Afghan and Iraqi war logs came out. You know, he was hailed as a as a free speech hero. Um, we look now at him as this figure living in the Ecuadorian embassy, increasingly wearing out his welcome, and the you know the role that he played in the 2016 election. What are your reflections on on him as a as a person and this highly unusual role he's played in in, in journalism? Well, he's a new breeder player. I think of him as an information anarchist. So he doesn't really believe in journalism. Um, I mean, I know we collaborated with him with some difficulty because even then his view of what we should be doing was different from ours. We thought uh, the job of a journalist is to is to try and publish documents safely, responsibly, redacted, uh, with due regard to libel laws and, and privacy and so on and so forth. He basically thought you should just dump it all out there and that's what he eventually did. Um, and he didn't believe in gatekeepers, you know, the people who appointed themselves to be the arbiters of what we could read. Everybody should be able to read everything. Uh, and the world's never had to face anybody like him before. Um, uh, and that was a difficult partnership. I've always said we would defend the stuff that we published together. Um, so if he ever does end up in the dock in, in America, we'll defend that. But your question goes further and says, well, what if, and I don't know if this is true, but what if he's now, as it were, the, the sort of laundry for foreign intelligence services to hack in to uh, to influence elections and they sort of launder it via Julian Assange to make it look like journalism? And I think that troubles me greatly. It seems to me different from what we were doing but it, it's, I mean, does, does that have any kind of First Amendment protection? Do you look at the motives of the people who have leaked or do you just look at the, the information itself and say, well, we must, you know, history has always had people who leak for dubious sources, for, for dubious reasons, but in the end, you just look at the information itself. So we're into a completely new era of of the capabilities of publishing and and its relationship with the law. And I, I don't, to be honest, know where that's going to go. Mm. There's, I think, so much confusion about the role that, that we as journalists play in, in this very chaotic uh, information ecosystem right now. And, I mean, at one point um, after the Snowden stories and the wiretapping um, NSA pieces, you were asked to... Uh, I don't know if you call it testifying in um, in in the UK in front of Parliament, and um, a Labour MP asked you, um, you know, do you love this country? Um, tell us about that experience and and how have these these moments where they're they're actually quite meta. You know, we're used to breaking the story and then there's just the story, but it seems like. In so many of these examples, the story boomerangs back to you as the um, as the journalist is being central to it. Yes, and in a way, you can't complain about that as a journalist. I mean, I, I think you know what we do is so important in society, and if we're to make that case, then it's right that we should have scrutiny. But this, this, I mean, the particular question that I was asked: Do you love your country because you were writing about national security? Uh, was a troubling one because it it sort of implied that 
that if the British state doesn't want you to publish something, you should say, I'm terribly sorry, that I, I didn't mean to bother you, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in my bottom drawer and not publish it, because we will always do what the state wants. That seems to me a basic misunderstanding of what journalism does or why it has to exist. Journalism has to be allowed to be independent of all forms of power and to make its own decisions on, on what is in the public interest. And you don't have to be much of a historian. You just go back as far as Daniel Ellsberg. You know, Nixon said that was a terrible crime for, for Ellsberg to have revealed truths about the Vietnam War that the, the American government didn't want to publish. Well, everyone now thinks Daniel Ellsberg was a hero and that Nixon was a crook. So you can't take the word of the state and say that, that should determine what the public gets to know. I mean, that's what happens in China or Russia. So it seems to me... If you do love your, your, your you, do you love your country? Yes, I love my country because it allows me to exercise this act of freedom. It's interesting too because I think that things have shifted so much that uh, you know, for all of your agonizing about publishing the NSA wiretapping story, you look at more recent decisions like BuzzFeed's decision to publish the uh, the Christopher Steele dossier, which you write about in the book as well. Um, and I think in hindsight, we can look back and say that was a gutsy, risky, but ultimately probably right decision given what we know now about um, the dossier. Um, but making these decisions in real time about, you know, putting unverified facts out there because journalists have privileged access to conversations and documents and things that are happening um, that do actually impact the public, whether we know they're true or not. Um, how do you puzzle through that? Well, I did actually seriously think at one point that that you need a kind of moral philosopher in the office because there are these huge issues that that now that no one's ever had to think about before. You know, we talked about Assange and the Christopher Steele dossier was another one. By the time that was published, I was a civilian. You know, I wasn't editing, and my first reaction was, well, I wouldn't have published that because the job of a journalist is to publish what's we know to be true and we, we sift and we publish what's true and we don't publish what's not true. You know, that was, that's what makes us different from the internet. But then I found myself thinking, well, when, when BuzzFeed did publish, I thought, well, why are all these newspapers sitting on this story and uh, not, you know, they're publishing all this stuff about Hillary. They don't publish this stuff about Trump. Why do they set themselves up as gatekeepers? Why don't they trust me to to look at this stuff and form my judgment? I mean, in the end, I, th I think BuzzFeed was right. I'm not saying they published it perfectly, but these are the kind of sort of huge new moral dilemmas that that editors are grappling with. Well, and you write about um, one that is quite close to my heart, just given my 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 own employer and the fact that I'm editor of HuffPost. You know, this open versus closed, gatekeeping versus, you know, having wide open gates. These are debates that we're all having constantly. And I, I found the, the section in the book talking about the launch of Comment is Free and how um, controversial that was within the newsroom. Um, maybe you could just quickly describe what Comment is Free was and, and why you launched it. It was HuffPo that frightened us into doing that, really. Um, and people laughed at Huffington Post when it started. I mean, it just looked like a vanity vehicle for Ariana. You know, the thought that people who weren't journalists were going to be invited to publish and they weren't going to get paid. It, you know, it was offensive and it was doomed to fail. And then within two years, I think, or three years, it had overtaken the New York Times. And the thing was, 
it was very hard for a legacy player to see the power of this. But if you sat down and thought it for, lo- for, for long, I mean, if, if the limitations of a printed comment section were that you could only print three or four pieces a day, and they tended to be, I'm afraid, middle-aged people sitting in, in uh, uh, usually middle-aged white blokes, but not entirely, um, sitting in an office. And no matter how good they were, that's a relatively narrow spectrum of, of opinion. And the moment we launched our version of HuffPost, as it were, which we called Comet is Free, after C.P. Scott, the, the Guardian editor who said Comet is Free, facts are sacred, we instantly had 30 viewpoints a day or 40 viewpoints a day, probably too many. So the, the place instantly became more diverse, more interesting, more iterative, more conversational, more messy, um, more difficult. Uh, the readers started, you know, answering back. Um, but it became a completely different idea of what a newspaper was from, you know, the hallowed comment section with, with great brains typing out their great thoughts and publishing them on paper. I think there is this kind of strange dialectic happening in, mm. in, our, in our industry. Um, and that brings me to something else that I've been thinking a lot about, which is the kind of ethical quandaries around around paywalls and around relying on your uh, readers for the majority of your revenue. I think that as journalists, we're very alert to the notion that money we earn from advertising has uh, the great potential to corrupt uh, our independence. I feel as though the corrupting influence of reader revenue is much less examined. And I wonder if that's something that you worry about and you think about that, um, you know, I look around the landscape and see some very successful legacy news organizations all clamoring to serve um, essentially the same group of people or different flavors of the same group of people, the well-educated, the affluent, um, the powerful, and fewer and fewer players that are seeing themselves as serving people who, frankly, are never going to pull out their credit card and get a subscription to the FT or the New York Times. Well, I think that's the worrying thing about paywalls. You know, I'm not ideologically opposed to paywalls, um, uh, and they may be the answer for some newspapers. But when I, in, in the book, I, I tell the story of a, of a of something that was spreading around social media about Muslims raping Swedish women in a particularly barbaric way, and uh, and and the people who were tweeting this were saying, "Look, mainstream media ignoring. Please retweet." And I. I, said, I assume you didn't retweet it. No, but I, I, read, I tweeted my friends in Swedish journalism and said, you know, why are you ignoring this story? And they said, we're not ignoring this story. Here's the link. And every time they sent me a link, I hit a paywall. So what they were doing was to say, well, we have reported this, but, but unless you pay up, you can't do it. And I respect their reasons for doing that. But what that had what effectively done was to leave the playing field open to any old neo-Nazi to come in and flood the zone with false information. Um, and look what happened in the last Swedish elections. You know, the, the, the far right uh, got the biggest vote in, in recent history in Sweden because they were being fed news and the elite media had decided to wall themselves off and say, well, we're, we're, that's not our job to inform everybody. I quote Dean Bacay in, 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 in the book saying, you know, yes, the New York Times has been a, a huge success and I'm sure he wouldn't 
uh, it would, would never take it down. But the fact is that 98% of Americans don't read the New York Times. Uh, they, they get other less reliable sources of news. And so you get back to this question of, well, what is the public service that journalism is performing so that everybody can be well-informed, not just a privileged elite? We're going to take another quick break now. Back in a minute with Alan Rusbridger. He's the author of a new book called Breaking News. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. On Recode Media, we talk to changemakers in their fields. In this next advertiser segment from Ericsson, you'll hear about how 5G technology is the next wave of change in the world of mobile connectivity. And now, the 5G Meditation Minute. Welcome. Just relax your body. Breathe. Repeat your mantra and feel the calm wash over you. 5G is here. 5G is here. And it's going to change the way we live. This next generation of wireless technology will revolutionize how we send and receive data. And Ericsson is one of the companies building the infrastructure we'll need. Push away the bad reception and overcrowded networks. 5G uses multiple antenna to boost capacity. So in large crowds of people, like at a packed concert, you can still connect and share selfies instantly. (sighs) Embrace the cloud. With minuscule latency and edge computing, 5G makes even remote files behave as if they were on your device. And you will have so much more to be thankful for. Augmented reality, 8K streaming, AI-assisted services, smart cities, and the ever-growing Internet of Things. Your future is empowered by 5G. (sighs) Lie back. Be present. Focus on real connections. Ericsson is bringing 5G to life. Breathe in and breathe out. Repeat your mantra and feel the calm wash over you. 5G is here. (sighs) Thanks for listening, and thanks to Ericsson for sponsoring this episode of Recode Media. And we're back with Alan. I do think about this question of can readers ultimately exert a pull, a financial pull on editors in a way that we would never allow, consciously allow advertisers to, but that serving serving readers sort of seems virtuous on its face. But um, sometimes I think there is a need to go against the grain of your audience and to um, make them angry and provoke them. And I do wonder if that's not adequately examined in the in the rush to put reader revenue at the center of um, of the business models of news. Yeah, Tina Brown uh, used to. She, I think she coined the phrase by biting the hand that reads you, uh, and I think that sums it up. You you have to be as independent from the readers as you would be from uh, advertisers or from um, not uh, from foundations or whoever else you're going to approach for money. But that's difficult, you know. I can see now, you know, a lot of Guardian readers are very angry with the Guardian because they don't think the Guardian's 
keen enough on Jeremy Corbyn, the, 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 the Labour leader. And in fact, there was a bunch of Corbyn supporters who were urging people to boycott The Guardian recently because they, they said this was a, a bad paper that was a sort of capitalist stooge. Um, and I think you just have to ride that out. You just have to say, well, I, either you respect us for our, our journalistic uh, independence, but I, I can see it, 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 you know, you're right. It's, 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 it's not nothing. I'm curious how The Guardian, as a paper that traditionally has had a position um, on, on the left and is not necessarily ide- ideologically aligned with the Labour Party, but certainly associated with what we in the, in the States would call liberal and progressive causes, navigates this moment where the ideological polls seem so m- – turned upside down. Um, you know, you had, uh, you know, factions from both of the major parties in the UK on the same side of the Brexit vote, for example. Um, how does a paper with um, with The Guardian's identity navigate that? Because I think your Corbyn example really speaks to, and that's very different from the tradition of journalism mm. in the United States. Well, it's difficult editing The Guardian because most – in this sense, sorry, I don't want to make claims I have. It's difficult editing The Guardian. <laughs> in, in this respect, there are the, – most of the press in the, in, in the UK is – leads to the right. And so there is a, an expectation in some that you will be the equivalent on the left. I remember Tony Blair when he was prime minister – beating us up and saying, you know, why can't you be like the Daily Mail, which is a right-wing paper that supports it? And, you know, no matter how many times we explained to him that The Guardian had never been a political party loyal paper, it had always floated around on, on the sort of the, the liberal fringes, he, he, he felt bitterly disappointed. So there is a pressure to sort of to fight the causes of the left. Um, but I think it's dangerous because... I mean, I just I can't stand the way that that society is now fracturing and becoming so polarized. Uh, and I think you have to you have to find common ground and and find a way of speaking to people from both sides of this polarized argument. And you're not going to do that if you start adopting left. So if you're solely adopting leftist or, or progressive positions. Well, and the ground does feel very confused. I mean, just taking an example from here in the United States, um, in the most recent midterm elections, you saw some of the most conservative states nevertheless voting, um, affirmatively voting on uh, ballot initiatives to, you know, expand Medicaid, to um, expand voting rights to felons and things like that, even as they continue to vote for Republican leaders. Um, So I think to me, that speaks to a, um, a kind of fragmentation of the um, of, of the electorate, in, the, in a sense that, for ordinary people, um, ideological consistency just really doesn't matter. I mean, people vote based on what they care about, what their interests are, and not because they prefer um, one wholly closed, consistent set of ideological beliefs. And I think that um, particularly as a, as a paper that's traditionally associated with the left, that that's an, an interesting and exciting but also quite challenging environment. Yeah, and it, it, and it sits in a world of social media and, and, and the way that people graze news or, or alight on news that is so different from the old environment. And one of the things is that we don't begin to understand that, I don't think. 
the people say that social media creates filter bubbles. But the academic research, I mean, I chair the Reuters Institute in Oxford now, and the academic research seems to suggest the opposite, that actually people are now exposed to more news sources than ever before. And, uh, you know, it was one of the one of the problems editing a garden with a particular history and, and, and tradition where most people were now accessing it through search uh, or, or social and would just land randomly on a an article, have no idea what the garden was or its history or its traditions, but would just respond to that one piece isolated from any context. And that's a, another new dilemma for the current age. So over the arc of your career, I mean, you've, you've been through this extraordinary transition from one thing, the print newspaper, to, I would say, a few different iterations of what the digital future looks like. Looking ahead, and as you said, you're now um, running the, the, the Reuters Institute at Oxford and, and you're teaching. What's next? What's on the horizon to your mind? Well, I think trust is the biggest you now. Um, why is it at this moment when we're looking over the precipice of a society in which we we see the impossibility of making society work without an agreed basis of facts. And you'd think people at that point would turn back to journalists and say, we forgive you, come back, all is forgiven. Um, and to some extent, that's happening. There is a, there's a kind of sort of Trump bump happening. But, but I'm not sure journalism has yet internalized the scale of the crisis. And it's partly... It's a partly trust issue and partly financial one. So if you have lived with a financial model that is 200 years old that that incentivizes certain kinds of journalism, it's very hard to pivot to a kind of journalism that basically says, look, there may not be a financial model for what we're doing, but society still needs it. Uh, And it's a kind of public service model. And we need to have a conversation about the information that, that societies need even if we can't immediately work out how that's going to be financed. And that's kind of a plan B conversation, but I think it has to begin now because it's going to take a lot of work and convincing the public and the remaking of journalism in order to be ready for that moment. Mm. Well, Alan Rusbridger, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Alan, for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you all for listening. If you like this interview, please tell a friend about it. Thanks to our sponsors and to Cadence 13 and Box Media for selling those ads. And thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits the show, and to the producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Most of all, thanks to Peter Kafka for letting me fill in for him today. Hello, Recode Media listeners. This is not an episode of Recode Media, but it is something you are going to like. It's another podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's called Function with a Neil Dash. If you know digital media, you probably know Anil Dash. If you don't, you should. He's awesome. On this episode, Anil explores a very, very Recode Media question. Should Twitter have an edit button? He talks to a former social media editor for NPR who explains why, yeah, we should have an edit button on Twitter. He also talks to Leslie Miley. She is a former engineering manager at Twitter about all the reasons Twitter may not have an edit button. You're going to like this sort of thing. We're going to play that episode for you now. And if you like what you're hearing, hint, you will. Go find Function with Anil Dash in your podcast app and subscribe. Big thanks to our sponsor, Microsoft Azure, for supporting the first season of Function. Startups, governments, and 90% of Fortune 500 companies are already running on Microsoft Cloud. Join them and find new ways to achieve more. 
Stay productive with familiar tools, develop and deploy where you want with a consistent hybrid environment, and build engaging apps with intelligent features. You can bring your bold ideas to life faster, push them further, and scale them worldwide. Start your free account at azure.com slash trial. That's A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash trial. This podcast is brought to you by me, me, me saying, why the hell does every podcast have the same three ads on it? To learn more, keep listening to this episode of Function, and you don't even have to use promo code Function to find out how it works. Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. You know, this week we're talking about advertising on podcasts, but this is on everybody's mind. Even just a couple weeks ago on SNL, they had a skit where they were talking about podcasts, and they went straight for how advertising works. Live from the Me Undies Theater in Portland, it's the party. Here are the nominees for most jarring transition into a sponsor. The preppy liberal podcast, Bros Save Politics. Fascism has arrived in America, yes. okay? Crazy! And the country is over. It's done! Now let's talk about Sherry's Berries. Everyone want to mail your mom some fruit? No, for real though, what we're going to do this episode is get into how podcasts pay the bills, why we keep hearing about those same mattress ads or whatever it is on every episode we listen to, and how do those ads end up on these podcasts in the first place? And to do that, we're going to talk to Francesco Baschieri, who's the president of VoxNest. Now, no relation to Vox Media, where we do our show. And VoxNest provides a lot of technology people use to create and listen to podcasts. They run networks like Blog Talk Radio and tools like Spreaker. And Francesco is going to take us deep into the world of how ads end up on our podcasts in the first place. And then after that, we're going to talk to Jade Next D from The Blackest Show About Nothing. And they're going to tell us what the vision is for podcasters themselves to be able to pay their bills. What does it take for them to get ads? What does it take for them to know who the advertisers are going to be? And when they get ads on their show, is that the ads that they feel they want their listeners to hear? Francesco, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, so for folks who don't know, can you tell a little bit about what VoxNest is and how you came to be part of that company? Yes. VoxNest is a technology company. We develop software solutions for professional podcasters. Um, basically, this means we develop the software that enables people to create, distribute, measure, and monetize a podcast or a spoken word audio show. The company started officially at the beginning of this year, and uh, the first thing that it did, it acquired two existing companies in the podcasting space, one of which was called Spreaker, and that's a company that I founded, mm -hmm. and that's how I came to be part of this company. So you got sort of bought up along with another pretty popular tool uh, platform for, for podcasters, and they're all part of VoxNest now. So they're saying, okay, we're going to build all the tools that podcasters need. And I think we can understand, okay, tools for recording, tools for distributing, that makes sense. And then you talked about monetization, which is the, you know, the industry term for being able to put ads on your podcast. That's correct. And what are the ways that people put ads in a podcast? Because it seems like it might be easy, right? I just, I get a, a thing to read and it says you should buy this mattress and we're done, right? That's that's correct, and that's basically how 90% of the money in this business today works. I mean, there are people getting agreements via email and exchanging requests for proposal, 
negotiating uh, a rate, doing the read within the show, and then collecting the check. It's great. The caveat is that this only works well in an economically viable way for large shows, which is probably 1% to 2% of the shows out there. Right, so you've got to be a big, giant, huge hit if you're going to make money that way, and everybody else would be pretty hard. Yeah, it's exactly what's happening today in podcast, but it's not going to be like this forever. As we've seen the same exact thing in different media, so things are evolving and changing in podcasting as well. Francesco, let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you come to be in the podcasting space? What were you doing before? By training, I'm a software engineer, and I came to be in the podcasting industry because roughly nine years ago, together with a, a few co-founders, I decided to start almost a, a, as a game, a company that had that wanted to do something in radio, not podcast. It was 2010, and I was going around pitching my company to investors, and every time I I mentioned the word podcast, they were uh, they lost interest. They said, oh, this is so 2005, it's done. You should think of something else, right? So really, to be honest, we avoided using the word podcast until 2013, 2014. That was like... And it came back in fashion. Everybody thinks it was serial to spark podcasting again. I really think it was the other way around. Serial was a product of a technology change which was Apple releasing iOS 8 with the podcast app front and center, the nice purple button there. So that, that sparked people's curiosity. And by the way, there was already plenty of content out there. So when you click a button and you immediately get access to a, a huge archive of content, then you're hooked. And it's still happening today. So technology enabled the cultural leap forward. Yeah, I'm biased. I, again, I'm an engineer, so I... I tend to think technology first and content second. This is a show about the way tech influences culture, so we'll buy that argument. So we see ads all over the internet, and we might know when we read a newspaper website that Google might have put those ads onto that page by using their systems. But in the world of podcasts, we have this relatively newer concept called dynamic ad insertion. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Dynamic ad insertion is basically a way to separate content from ads. So I have content living in one bucket and all the ads living in different buckets, as opposed to what happened before, which was called baked in ads. So ads were actually part of the content. Dynamic ad insertion allows you to make this happen at consumption time. So let, let's pretend you're the content producer, you're the host of the show. You basically record your show and you know that there are like natural points where you want an ad to be inserted, but you just tape it or, or produce it or create it. In, in our platform, what you, see, what you will see is a waveform spanning the entirety of, of your show. And the next decision that you have to take is where do you place the ads and how many? You can place an ad at the beginning of, of the show, technically known as a pre-roll ad, one at the end of the show, known as a post-roll ad, and everything in between is, is called a mid-roll with a lot of fantasy. So you only have to decide this and also give to the platform the constraints we're talking about. So I don't want any, I don't know, fast food chain advertiser or anything like that. Behind the scene, what happens is that people will consume your content. Your content will be consumed by podcatcher uh, trying to download an MP3 file through the feed of your podcast. When that happens in real time, we try and figure out as much as we can about the, all these constraints. So 
where the request is coming from, geography. What content is the request hitting? What are the constraints by that producer? What are all the campaigns that can potentially be served in the content? So what we have is on one side, a big MP3 file with your show. On the other side, four or five small MP3 files with 30 seconds ad. Then we cut your, your file, we stitch the ads and the file into a single component, and we deliver it. But this is so fast that it, basically the whole process lasts for a fraction of a second and is repeated as many times as necessary in real time. Of course, we keep uh, pre-made content in a cache so that we don't do this this too often. But at the end of the day, this is what we do all the time. Right. So now when, if I look at you know media sites or, or news sites that I read out on the internet, they've got ads that I know they didn't necessarily do themselves. Like if I go and I look at a pair of boots and I don't buy them, then every media site I look at for the rest of the day, that pair of boots follows me around and it says, you know, don't you want to buy these now? You got them in your shopping cart, right? So I know there's these systems behind the scenes, whether it's Google or Facebook or whoever, are putting ads on all the sites that I look at. But with podcasts, there isn't any of that. Is there? Is there a way to track like who I am or to have that connection to the like what ads I see? Due to the nature of podcast, the podcast ecosystem today, so the fact that actually content is consumed through a plethora of applications called podcatchers out there, mm-hmm. Apple Podcasts is probably the most famous. Right. So Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, those are all the different apps that people use. Yeah, exactly. That's correct. And uh, the only uh, component of the chain that has the, this information for doing this user tracking is actually the application installed on your phone. If somebody owns the application through which you're listening to podcast, then the same thing can happen with podcasting, the same thing that happens today with video and with display advertising. The thing is, um, today these apps are so many and owned by so many different components, and there's no direct relationship between these apps and the content producers. So the ads need to be inserted some way into the show without knowing this information. So this is interesting. It is different than the pages we read on the web. This is something where, because there's so many different apps people listen to podcasts in, and nobody owns the whole thing from the podcast creator all the way down to the listener, uh, it's a it's a much more sort of fragmented market and fragmented audience. And what's interesting is it seems like one of the takeaways there is then as a listener, I'm less tracked. I don't actually have that same sense where like Facebook knows everything I do on the internet, but not with podcasts. Absolutely. That's 100% true. So that's nice. So I'm, I got a little bit more privacy protection. But then if I'm putting on my head of being somebody that runs a podcast, which I am, can I still make money? Is there a way to sell ads that's going to work for me even if I'm not one of that like 1% or 2% biggest hits? Like I'm not, you know, the this week's most favorite murder podcast. Like how do I still make money? Well, that's stuff uh, that companies like Voxens, for instance, are working on. The, the issue in making money out of shows is the fact that if, if you uh, sponsor a product within your show, most likely your audience is going to buy it. However, there's a, let's say, a threshold and a minimum uh, number of listens per episode that you need to have in order to make this economically viable. And this day, uh, today, this number is too high for most of the podcasts out there. And the reason why there's a this threshold, which is basically a 
on-off threshold, meaning that if you're above this threshold, you're doing pretty good money. If you're below this threshold, you're doing nothing as of today. Right. Is that the sales chain is long and it's made of human and everybody needs to be compensated within this chain, right? So uh, even if you uh, get high CPMs, and we'll talk about what CPMs are, but basically it's the money that you get for a thousand listens of, of an advertising. Even the CPMs in podcasting today are probably the highest in the advertising market, uh, you cannot access this good stuff, this good buys, if you're not of a certain size. And uh, the way to enable this for everybody is to leverage technology. So cut out most of these um, man-in-the-middle human uh, stuff that it's basically preventing you, the content producers, to get the money directly from the advertiser. So it sounds like in podcasts... The same size audience as you would see in a you know a written website or something like that will actually have a higher ad rate, but you can only capitalize on that if you're one of the very very biggest podcasts. That's absolutely correct. The the advertising rate is probably ten times higher wow. than what you have in uh, display. So that's interesting because what happens is then you have the other ninety nine percent or ninety five percent of podcasts that have no option to really make any substantial money, and and one of the things you're looking at and and, and people that do what you do are looking at is could we use technology to just insert ads into the podcast, right? Almost almost drop them in, in into the what we're listening to. People tend to associate the technology that inserts the ad into the podcast with those cheesy ads that you normally listen to on <laughs> FM radio station. Right. Um, the technology is not the culprit here. It's just the creative stuff that's not there yet. I have to tell you, most of the ads that you listen to on podcasts today are inserted dynamically using the same exact technology. It's just that the spot is recorded by the host himself. Huh. So you don't really hear the difference. So there's robots behind the scenes putting the ads in, but the ad that they're putting in sounds a lot better, so you don't mind. Exactly. And this happens with every major podcast out there. And the reason is very simple. Host read, host advertising, host read endorsements are sold um, with the projection of the downloads or the listens of the episode within a one-month period after publishing, right? Everything... Uh, that comes after the threshold is not sold to the advertiser. So there's a huge opportunity with the archive. Instead of leaving ads baked into the content there that would became, become stale at some point in the future, why don't you replace the ads after this 30 days period has ended and sell them to somebody else? So potentially uh, just try it, um, download a podcast episode today, then wait for a month or something like that, re-download the same episode on a different phone maybe, and you see that a different ad will definitely pop in, but this ad will be actually voiced by, by the host. So for example, if you got a podcast, you have one of these ads inserted, it might be for a movie that's about to open. And a month from now, the movie's open, it's already out of theaters. Because you've got this technology, that could be updated and the, and the host sounds like they're reading a different ad for something else the next time you listen to the exact same show. Absolutely. And uh, back in the day, there were even worse case scenarios, like companies that were advertised that in, in the meantime had gone out of business, but the <laughs> ad was still there, or coupon codes that didn't work anymore. That expired. Right? Yeah, that expired. So this technology was born to solve a particular problem. Now... Even if we have this technology and we potentially can do 
this kind of host ride promotions. The truth is that for smaller shows, this is not feasible because uh, there's always some kind of manual check involved. Advertisers and agencies want to hear an ad, listen to an ad before it's aired. So if you're creating something that can potentially go on a thousand different shows, different small shows, they will have to approve a thousand different creatives. And if they don't approve them, there's some back and forth process of re-recording. So you can understand this is not feasible. Right. If you're an advertiser and you want to have your ad show up on a thousand different podcasts, you're just going to give them a canned recorded advertisement. That makes sense. But what happens if one of those shows says, I didn't really want this and the, the technology inserted it into my show, but this isn't the advertiser I wanted. Is there anything they can do? Is that a problem you can fix? Obviously, there's a protection on both sides of the marketplace. Content creators can choose uh, what type of ads they don't want or basically uh, disallow specific advertisers. On the other side, we also need to ensure uh, advertisers that the content is brand safe. So you're, they're connecting their, their brand actually with content which is not sketchy. So does that ever happen? Have you had shows where somebody says, that's not what I want? And not even if it's sketchy, they're just like, oh, that's not a company that I like. And they, they want to turn that off. Obviously. I mean, we have plenty of vegan shows and they would never accept McDonald's as an advertiser on their shows. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a normal thing. You design for it. It happens every day. And, and, and there's some measure of control. Yeah. The, the easiest part, I mean, there's a uh, let's say a drill down list of categories. Um, you can you can be very wide or very narrow in in the disallowing or disabling some categories. At the end of the day, the pickier you are, the less money you're going to to make because at some point we're going to run out of campaigns or right. potential advertisers. But uh, there's plenty of fish out there. So if you're too narrow, then it's going to start to cost you. I've I've seen people basically disabling. 99% of the categories, hoping that they only get a, a very specific type. But the truth is, there's just a limited number of companies that today are advertising on podcasts, so uh, you're probably not going to get any ads. Right. Well, on the other hand, if you want people to build websites or you want uh, mattress companies or you want meal kits, you can probably find an advertiser on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a joke in the industry. Right. Yeah. So, so – a question from the other side is, you're, we're talking about at the high end, a podcast ad for the same size audience might cost 10 times what it costs to buy that same size audience on a on a print website or you know a, a written word website. Does podcast advertising perform 10 times as well? Like, is, is this a performance tied to that price? Yes. That's the reason why it's uh, so high priced. I would say it's so high valued. Mm-hmm. The thing is, for a variety of reasons... Um, Podcast listeners are engaged with the content. Actually, the smaller the show, the more engaged the listeners are. Right, so like a, a niche that they belong to and identify with. Exactly. So it's not a display banner on a web page that you can basically skip with your eyes. You are forced – most of the time you are forced to listen to the content. It's 30 seconds and you're going to listen anyways. Our data tells us that our, people do not pull out the phone from their pocket just to skip 30 seconds ahead because it would – at the end it's of the day, of yeah, yeah, it will take them roughly the same amount of time to unlock the phone, open the app, and just skip skip the ad. So they just listen to it. However, since they're listening to spoken word and not music, their brain is turned on. It's not just something that they're listening to in the background. So 
podcast advertising performs pretty well. Where do you think this goes next? If if you're uh, an audience member listening to podcasts, should you expect there's going to be a lot more ads in your podcast or they're going to be just more interesting to you? Like, how does this evolve? Uh, well, if I'm an audience member, I definitely hope both. <laughs> uh, more ads mean means more money in the business, which means more valuable content for me. And uh, better targeted ads means that these are less annoying. So what are some of the other things we should look for? Are, are people doing, so sometimes I see, you know, crowdfunding or Patreons or people doing subscriber-only podcasts. Is that a thing that you think is going to be a big part of the audience or is that more of a narrow audience? I don't have a crystal ball, but I think there's room for plenty of different ways to monetize content. The truth is that if you're producing a highly produced show, something like a, a scripted show, well, data says that it's probably more likely that you'll end up with a viable business model if you think subscription first, not ad supported first, unless you're really the top 1%. Because it's so expensive to produce the scripted shows and uh, it's very, very hard as of today to hit it big enough to, to pay back. So subscription is definitely going to be a good model. Um, think Netflix, but for audio. Listener supported, think public radio, is definitely going to be a component of the pie. But if you look at traditional media, the vast majority of media out there is ad-supported. I don't see why it should be different in spoken word audio. All right. Well, I think that's a natural point for us to draw to a close and perhaps throw to a sponsor message. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. After the break, we're going to come back with Jaden XD from The Blackest Show About Nothing, and they're going to talk about what it's like to actually pay the bills on a real working podcast. On Function, we explore the stories behind the world's most impactful technology. Coming up next, we'll hear an advertiser segment from Microsoft Azure. The building blocks for industry in the 21st century aren't cement blocks and steel beams, but digital tools and platforms. The way we look at a, a new building is that it's a smart building, it's a cognitive building, it's fully connected, it's able to be optimized through digital platforms and digital technology. That's Dale Brett. He's a co-founder and chief product officer at Willow, a technology company that creates a digital map of the physical world in high-res detail. It's called a digital twin. With a digital twin, we can see all of the context of that building live in a digital format on our computer online. Willow takes data from all of the systems inside a building, the lights, the heating system, which meeting rooms are in demand, and stores it on the Azure cloud. Then Willow uses machine learning algorithms to understand this data and make smart decisions about the built environment. It's really about the data analytics, which then allows us to see how's the temperature been going, the air quality, has it been operating at 100% capacity, or are there certain components that show us we can do predictive maintenance. Then the team can apply these learnings to new projects and easily bring them to scale. All this is why the team at Willow uses Microsoft Azure. Learn more about the tools you can use to build a smarter world and business with Azure. Try a new Azure free account at azure.com slash trial. A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash trial. Thanks, Microsoft Azure, for sponsoring Function. Now back to the show.
Welcome back to Function. I'm Anil Dash. In a moment, we're going to talk to Jaden XD. They're the co-hosts of the blog talk radio show, Jaden XD, the blackest show about nothing. And you can find it in all the usual spots that you find podcasts. But they're going to give us a perspective behind the scenes about how two experienced podcasters get advertisers on their show, work with sponsors, and what it takes to have those ads show up whenever you're listening to their show. Thank you all for gathering with us. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. So there's so many things we can get into. First, for folks that might not know the show, might not know that what you all do, can you, can you give a little bit of background about how you got into being, you know, media stars? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so much pressure. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it was really kind of natural. Um, Jade and I had been friends for a while before that. And so we had another show and a guy approached me and he was just like, hey, let's do a podcast. And he wanted to do all guys. And I was like, not in this climate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, we should have a woman on. And he was like, I don't know. I said, I know just the lady. But how was your vacation? It was a lovely. Um, I just relaxed my titties off. I really did. Yeah. Like brawless the entire time. Same. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, me yeah. all four days. Yeah, yeah. And it Wake was amazing. Post up brawless. Ride around because I went around brawless. You post up brawless, ride around brawless, top down brawless. It's literally just Jade and I every week talking about the musings of our lives. And we not we don't really do pop culture. We, mm. um, it's literally just the stuff we like to talk about. Right, so yeah. the world around you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you fast forward a couple of years and now y'all have got an audience. You, you've been yeah. doing this big enough to be able to do other shows and everything else like yeah. that. And I want to talk about something that almost never comes up on shows, which is how do you pay the bills Ooh. doing this, right? <laughs> we're going to get personal. We're going to get deep. Mm. And I think about the paying the bills and any of us who's ever listened to any podcast really almost – it doesn't matter what it's about. It can be about pop culture. It can be about politics, whatever. At some point, they're like, well, now it's time for us to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here comes Squarespace or here comes Mail Casper Kim. Mattress. Or here comes <laughs> Mail Kimp, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Mail yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> so so uh, talk to me about what was the first time you remember, oh, we've got a sponsor. we got to do something. Oh, Ooh. wow. <laughs> so like when we first started, ooh, I, I was coming out of pocket for everything. And I remember when Jade and I went, our, went solo, when it's just us, um, I remember I think in January of 2017 is when we got word that we were getting sponsors. And it was like, oh, happy day. Yes. <laughs> because initially when we when we started in the back back, we, yeah. we had like – Target and Warby Parker. We had like some affiliate, real... affiliate things yeah. that right. everybody can do that because I came right. from the blogging world, so that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And podcasting, like I had a radio show before, but it wasn't like, you know, I was just bored at home. <laughs> but I didn't understand the business of it until way later. And I believe... And thus far, you had just been paying for it all. So you're like, anybody yeah. who wants a sponsor, that's good. Absolutely. Yeah. And our first sponsor was Blue Apron. Mm-hmm. And Classic we, podcast sponsor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah no <laughs> Right. And, and after that, I was like, Jade, 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 bitch, we got a sponsor. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, like, we like to get the shit. Like, yeah. We're, yeah, yeah. We, you, you get the stuff that you get to promote. Oh, but, yeah. Um, no one ever wants to, get... to talk about that to 
too, yeah. but everybody mm. who's getting a sponsorship gets free shit, and yeah. it's amazing. All right. <laughs> so, okay, now that becomes a lot clearer. This is the behind the scenes that I don't think folks know. Okay. Is you're, so you're going home and you're eating some Blue Apron after Blue Apron sponsors your show. Well, the thing is, I'm, I'm huge on integrity, yeah. kind of. <laughs> well, you know, uh, No, I, I don't mean to lie. I'm just like, you know you just two minutes ago were just saying, like, we get all this free shit, so I just want to know... Like, I, I respect mean, the integrity, you know, but I mean, the, integrity the free ish. shit integrity. But yeah. I can't talk about it if I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So they no, have right. to send That's us right. examples. And I, you know, if I don't, if I can't bang with the product, then mm-hmm. I don't, then we won't do, there's, there is advertising that we turn down. Because right. it just doesn't align with. Right. Like what we there like was, or anything there like was that. There was one instance where we got um, asked to do like birth control. <laughs> I was like, I'm um, <laughs> yes. for. First of all, you know, <laughs> we have you a know, category like, problem. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Jade has like a kid, and I am allergic to those. So <laughs> I'm, I'm way cool on that. So yeah, we don't accept everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like dog food. Yeah, I don't have no dog. Wow, all right, yeah, I don't have a dog <laughs> Ooh, either. Man, shade to the dog food. No, I so, mean, if we had a dog, it's great, but we don't. We don't so it's got to be real for you. It's got to be something yeah. real. Like this is credible. This is plausible yeah. for me. Absolutely. Okay, not to get too deep in it, but I'm curious about the mechanics. So what happens? So somebody, you know, you, you, you say you sell a sponsorship, and then, you, you know, I think we've all noticed that what people say about Blue Apron is pretty similar in yeah. all yeah. these different podcasts. But what yeah. people say about, you know, Squarespace is pretty similar. So so how does that happen? What's the – where does that – where do those do words wanna, come from? Do I want to give out all the secrets? I guess so, right? They tell you what to say. Mm-hmm. And so, uncoupled yeah. with your personal experience, like Jade said, like you don't – you can't advertise something if you don't try it out. Mm-hmm. And so they tell you to talk about your personal experience. But there is a structure of how the advertisers or the ad agencies want you to sell the product. So you got like bullet points that you should hit. Yes, But you're putting your voice on it. Key, mm-hmm. key points. There's also points that they don't want you to mention, you know. Because a lot of times we'll fly off the cuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. We get our own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as long as we hit those those few things that they're like, okay, you need to say this. We need mm-hmm. to put this out there to the listeners. And please don't mention like this. Right. Yeah. So know, it's like try a mattress, but don't add in like destroy capitalism. At the yeah. End, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we've, got, we've gotten in trouble once for not for going off the script. And, mm-hmm. and the agency was like, we're not going to pay you this week. However, yikes. <laughs> oh, right. God. Yeah, so that it goes, was straight, to, it goes yeah. straight to your pocket. <laughs> literally. That one was stupid. <laughs> it, was. It, was, it was literally one word off. It was. Mm-hmm. It was dumb. And it was like a preposition. It wasn't even like. It uh, wasn't meaningful. No. no, it was like I said, jeans instead of denim or some shit. Oh, like that. yeah, but something. that's like that's to them that's important or something. Right? To, to, m- yes, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. What you what you about to ask? I'm being, <laughs> I'm, being I'm being kind. I'm being charitable. Yeah. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they just did mess with the bag as soon as you they got one word wrong. They messed with the bag off of yeah. one one stupid ass word. <laughs> get okay. it together. I read everything else. <laughs> okay, so that's good because I did want to get in on that because I think it's something that. So, you know, whatever people on the train, people in the car, they're listening to something and they're hearing it. And it's almost like there's a, a template, mm-hmm. right? And it, it actually doesn't matter. It can be meal kits. It can be you should build a website. It can be you should get a mattress. Those seem to be the big three. I don't mm-hmm. know what else people are buying, but people are doing a lot of sleeping, a lot of eating and a lot of websiting. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I have I have two weekly podcasts mm-hmm. and one of them is on Combat Jack's his, yeah, his yeah. former network, uh, Loudspeakers. Yeah. And so... A lot of our very good friends are also on loudspeakers. And mm-hmm. then, you know, XD and I are, are over here on uh, Blog Talk own. Radio. Yeah. Yep. So what's so funny is that if you listen to The Read, if you listen to The Friend Zone, if you listen to Getting Grown, 
we all have the same ads. Yeah. And then you come over to, to Jaden XD and, we, you know, we'll also have a very similar ad. Mm-hmm. It's like to, to show support for this show. Right. Yeah. You know, make sure you mention this code. But apparently it's working. What you just alluded to is a couple sort of related parts. One is there are... Uh, podcast networks which are a group of shows and it's and it's not like a tv network this is like people are putting the shows together and you're affiliated basically somebody is selling ads across those shows i mean Mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest things you have in common and then there are different networks and do you have an experience seeing what that lens is across different networks and it sounds like it's kind of the same stuff on both sides Mm -hmm. it's really similar like it's a similar analogous job like you might see the same commercial on back in the day cbs and abc yeah when those were the two or the three networks or whatever and and right. you'd be like okay it's the same same ford ad it's right. a chevy truck it is what it is so it sort of works rock. like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no uh, there the networks thing um it's interesting. I, I will say the difference when with Jade's other show and ours is the fact that I think, and I guess we'll talk about this later, is that most of Jade's stuff is live reads and stuff like that, where yeah. ours are both live and dynamic, where the people who give us a check every month now, they insert ads for us in the beginning and throughout, mm-hmm. which is sometimes we can't control. There was an instance where... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about it? We'll no? get into it in one second. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about two two words you just used, which I think folks need to understand. It's not too much jargon. One is reads, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is not <laughs> not the vernacular use of reads. <laughs> but it, and podcast read is is you get that language from mm-hmm. a, from an advertiser, and this is yeah. the stuff you're supposed to say about mm-hmm. the product or the service, whatever it is. And then there's inserts, right? Which is they're going back after your show is recorded, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're dropping in an ad. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, like literally. Um, like today, uh, we get the episode from our producer. I upload it to a space, and then I like put like a marker on the in the little space that they tell me to, and like where to put a commercial break. And that's when they will insert the dynamic ads, and we don't know what those ads are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into that. What happens is you've got a system that's going to drop a, a little audio clip that's an ad right mm-hmm. into your podcast. It happens after you've done the show. Uh, between the time when you've done the, the ep- recorded the episode and it gets to our ears as listeners, this thing has been inserted. What can happen in that moment? Some oh. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you ready for let's, it? Let's get, let's get to it because this was a big issue. Um, last so week. the live uh, the inserted ads that we get they just started maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when they first came, we were like, oh, shit, we have commercials. Like, That's this is great. crazy. Yeah. And we got all kinds of stuff. We get AutoZone. We get AutoZone in Spanish, AutoZone. <laughs> yeah. And it's fun. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's great. Yeah. I like to go back and review the episode after we put it out right. because I want to see how the listeners are hearing it. Our editor is absolutely amazing. So yeah. I like to hear how he does that. So the finished product is what you want The complete finished product. I want to see how these ads are working, what's not working. I want to try to catch it before other listeners are catching it. Well, we've got some really loyal listeners. Mm. And they'll hit hit the episode as soon as it comes out. So we started getting like a bunch of tweets and emails. And so I go and listen to the episode and I hear a Fox News ad. Wow. 
lost my shit. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> so immediately. And that's a bit of a leap from your audience. I, a, a bit we from the Blackest very, Show about nothing very, <laughs> to a Fox News ad. Progressive. I yeah, mean, I'm I, radical. Yeah. I speak about everything from like being a cannabis advocate, mm-hmm. you know, to raising my child in some ways that may people may find problematic. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To yeah. all kind of music, whatever. But yeah. like, we have a good but time. But even the most charitable interpretation, there's no yeah. way this is a There's fit. no, no way. way that they know that this is us so immediately we jump on the phone and then we get on an email with the network and let them know very plainly like i don't ever want to hear this shit again (laughs) i don't care what you all have to do i don't know who this got passed right but it doesn't align with our politics it doesn't align with anything regarding our brand or our personal beliefs right take this shit down and don't ever put it up again right and that's that and, pretty clear and they were they were very apologetic <laughs> yeah even more so when i put the our attorney on the email yeah <laughs> and and they got taken care of post haste did they did they blame like oh the software did this or was it they like, said there's that always a blame right there was um a bad deal and they sent them a bad ad that in the audio channel and that you know they had to go and strip away all the other audios and see which one was the problem it, it was a really I didn't really care about the answer <laughs> mm-hmm. just take it off our show yeah and they got rid of it it's an interesting thing because what you have is this dynamic where you sort of want the convenience of having these ads inserted because then you're not having to do the whole, you're not having to read it, you're not having to do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit more. And also there's some separation between you and the advertising, right? Because right. it's yeah. like, oh, it's over there and it's like the other side of the house. So I don't have to worry about that. Right. But the cost of that is this danger. When you, you know, whereas when you were reading it, you know exactly what you said, mm-hmm. that it was literally in your voice and that you could have that filter on it. You know, the downside of that, of course, is then you got to do it. So right. I'm curious about, like, where does the bounce go? Like, if you could wave your magic wand, which way would you want that to go? This is, I guess this is when it comes down to a money conversation. But you get more money when you do live reads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can control all that good stuff, which is great. Mm-hmm. But I'm all about getting to the money. So mm-hmm. if we could do all live reads, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm cool with <laughs> and the that, And that's cool because, A, we can control. We say it on voice. We know it's we control our brand and, and the listener experience. But we're making more money. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it solves a bunch of problems all at once. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And we did this for a long time with no money. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we're just trying to – it's fun. It was started off as a hobby. It started off as something that, you know, we, we wanted to try out. And then it grew into something. And that's why advertising is important to us because mm-hmm. – it, that's what turns it from a hobby into a business. There's a lot of the costs of running a podcast that might be invisible, even though people know you got to buy a microphone, something like that. Where, where are the things that that people wouldn't expect or don't see, or don't know that all this money is going to to make the thing thing run? There's this famous interview with Left Eye from TLC, and she's talking about like this is how you go broke. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is how a group can sell 10 million records and be broke. And everyone, get ready to do your math. Okay. There are 100 points on the album. TLC had seven. Every point is equal to eight cents. All right? Seven times eight. When I talked about paying for everything, so there's outside of equipment, there's where do you upload your show? Like, how does it get to these spaces Mm -hmm. on iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever? Which is like the infrastructure to mm -hmm. deliver the show. Right. So you have to pay for hosting. 
I didn't know that. And like, <laughs> I was like, well, where does this go? <laughs> yeah. And, and so you have to find hosts and you have to make sure you find the best host because sometimes you, if you get a wrong host and they get you on bandwidth and then you start to grow and then you had to upgrade. Mm-hmm. That was a problem that Jade and I had in the very beginning where we kept having to upgrade our hosting because um, it was a blessing that we got more listeners, but we have to pay for more bandwidth, like early days of like blogging and stuff like right. that. And if you get all that right, it's invisible to your listener. Right. Right. And then right. on top of that, you've got so you've got equipment. And again, I told you all that I am like, I, I, I'm not that's not my friend. <laughs> Technology is not my friend. But you still have to research and find out what works best. Then you get something and that might work for a while. But then you realize I want to crisp my sound up some more. And like. We're not in the Vox studio, so yeah, yeah. you know we went and got we went and got some real swanky like we got boards. A, we got a board, yeah. all and kinds stuff. of Granted, things. Granted, we record how you mix the sounds, for folks. right? right. Yes, mixing yeah. board, and, and for all intents and purposes, we record at Jade's house. Yeah, yeah, like right where. But you have to upgrade it into sounding like yes, yeah. yeah so we have to yes. make it so that it sounds like we're in a studio, and we're in reality we're in. Jade's house and her daughter Noah just comes in and says like mom yeah. <laughs> but it's a lot of trial and error yeah. figuring out what kind of equipment will work sometimes you'll get something that will really improve your sound and then you realize there's something a little bit better out there mm-hmm. um, and then also constant upgrades and all yeah that. and then you've got live shows we talked about doing live shows and you know plane tickets don't pay for themselves neither do hotels neither do venues neither do no. yeah, you know so a, lot of, a lot of infrastructure there's a lot of Cost. There's a lot right. involved in running a whole entire production, and and luckily Jade is more of a, a better talker than I am when it comes to like negotiating and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I just I just pay the bills. It sounds like a good partnership. Yeah, yeah you make the deal, yeah. you pay the bills. Yeah. that's literally how it goes. And like, and we just upgraded our equipment again, and yeah. we have to do it again to get it something never better. Ends. It, it never ends. Things it break down. Because then you'll get a barrage of emails from listeners. Well, why did this week sound so shitty? And I'm like, well, bitch, you didn't have to buy anything. (laughs) This is for free. (laughs) And then we we pay for um, our producer. Yeah. We Mm -hmm. give him a monthly stipend. Our videographer, we pay. Uh, so you got to take care of, of your people. You right. Take care and so of the, right. So the reason why we do all these extra things is because we have a lot of overhead to pay. Yeah. And then you got to pay yourself. And mm-hmm. then you have to pay yourself. Yeah. Which, whew, after all is said and done, <laughs> and you hope that you make a decent, you know, you take home and, you know, that it all adds up. That yeah. it all adds up. But it's just like, you know, a lot of people are relying on us because we, we've said we're going to pay them. Yeah. When we when we first started out, we were it started out as a hundred dollars a month kind of thing altogether. Because then there's a website too. Now and then towards the end, where before we got blessed and being on a new network and stuff, where we don't have to pay for much, but it was like two hundred bucks a month. Yeah, coming out of a pocket where we're not receiving any advertisers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was just like that adds up. Yeah, yeah. So if you get tired of the blue apron ads, just think about the fact that you're listening to this thing for free for the next hour, (laughs) fifteen minutes or whatever. Like you know what? I'm just gonna sit through this thirty second ad because these people have a lot. They have a lot going on. Please visit our show notes and click on the links. Please use that code. So there's another thing that's related to this, which is that you know we've sort of been joking about. There's these three, four, five sponsors that seem to come up all the time, mm-hmm. and yeah. and it's wild because it like it can be a show about whatever, and you know here's a show about architecture and it's a, sort of the same sponsors as the you know the show about cooking or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
how do you think that happened? Why is it that that we know about, you know, like I said, Squarespace and, and Casper and Blue Apron and those things? Why why are those the go to, or Mailchimp? Why are those the go to on these? Why do you think that's it's it's that, you know, coalesced around a couple brands? I think is part of just like the people who actually listen to podcasts. Like you said earlier, like there's a bunch of people who are just busy, and so they get meal kits and they sleep all the time, and <laughs> mm-hmm. they need a website for their dog grooming business or something. <laughs> so I, I think that's where it comes from. And I also think a lot of a lot of companies are reluctant to advertise in a medium that's super new because they don't understand the risk. So these are like the early adopters that figured it out. And that's why they're saying yeah, it. Make sure to mention our podcast so that you get the discount. Exactly. Right. That's they're why they're, they're on podcasts and they're on the train. And they're right. like mm-hmm. where the people are. They're where the millennials are they're where the people who are working and buying are so they're ahead of the curve Uh, yeah yeah. and like jade and i get sponsors from other people so like people would be like hey not not even attached to our network or anything they'll Mm -hmm. they'll email us and just like how much for a commercial space and so because they realize that they believe in the power of advertising in this new medium and i i wish other companies would figure that out because you know, there is more to it life works. than just. Mm-hmm. Um, it works. So, you know, so there's an interesting thing. I look at companies that spend a lot on advertising, and I look at uh, like Apple, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if you go to like a fancy magazine, you get the New Yorker, or whatever. The back cover is going to be that iPhone, that iPod, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, not iPod, iPod anymore. Yeah. Like, what is this? Yeah, in 2003. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they still sell them. But they do. Yeah. They do. How dare you? <laughs> Back in the day, it'd be the it, it was then, and now it's iPhone. Um, but and, and then TV, you know, their ads are all out. They got yeah. you know big names and big faces, and, the, and they license the music, all that stuff. So they spend probably more money than anybody on the production values of those things. As far as I know, you all correct me if I'm wrong. I have never heard somebody reading on a podcast. You should try the new iPad. Which no. is crazy. Isn't that wild? No. You're spending, what, 10, 30 seconds on, and TV is like half a mil. Why don't you, you can spend a fraction of that on a podcast. Like, put an iPad ad on Joe Rogan's show. That's the top comedy podcast. Like, he got Blue Apron just like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's like the big names. Sure. Are, you know, whatever. You listen to like Pod Save America and these guys are like yeah. huge, yeah. right? And you're like, it's Blue Apron up in here or too, like right? Or like Serial. I'm like, yeah, yeah it's twins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you get these things that are sort of like the, the, the biggest names that, that, that exist and they're running the same ads. Meanwhile, if you are, you know, forget the Super Bowl. If you're Monday Night Football, mm-hmm. yeah. you've got custom ads and they're doing the, the specific ads and the, everybody's like, you know, we want to be the truck that sponsors this or whatever, right? Yeah. I don't know why trucks in my mind today, <laughs> and uh, I'm not a big truck guy, and and sure. and so I'm pretty sure. So, so what happens is you you know you, if you're something like Monday Night Football, you've mm-hmm. got these ads and people are trying to be in front of your audience, and every brand knows they should be there. And if actually you saw an Apple ad next to a you know a food ad or McDonald's ad, some you'd be like, sure. Yeah, that all belongs there. It doesn't matter if it's something that's a $2 cheeseburger or you know $2,000 laptop. Absolutely. Uh, it's all that same audience. Mm-hmm. Podcast, we've got this, seems like kind of a narrow view. Now, I think podcast audience, all the data show, like these are folks that are probably a little more educated, probably a little well off. They can afford to mm-hmm. have the free time to do this stuff. Like, you know, it's, it's fine. Like there's some things in common with the audience, but they could be, well, certainly they're eating burgers, yeah. right? right. We, don't, we don't eat our cheeseburger ad. Like I, I'm curious about like, is it is it almost the ad saying who they think the audience is? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even with my other show, which is like more woman geared, mm-hmm. um, 
we get a ton of we get a ton of advertisers coming in wanting to advertise different feminine products and then we randomly got like a beer company <laughs> which i thought right. i mean i think yeah. that's because of me yeah. but <laughs> let's drink some beer right. I, I do like a beer yeah. right. but we get a lot of feminine products and like shoe companies and uh-huh. detox programs and, and they haven't found any other places they feel like they they have they many. do have other places but i'm noticing that these smaller companies who are reaching out to us and are reaching out to some of the other podcasts are focusing on a lot of the influencers yeah. who are mm-hmm. geared toward their particular brand. So shaping I am the conversation kind of noticing right. that. Yeah. And that, to Jay's point, they, along with the actual show and the numbers, it's also who the hosts are. Yeah. So if they see like Jade is big on Instagram and has a bunch of followers on Instagram and I'm bigger on Twitter, like they'll well, they'll use those numbers and be like, oh well, if they have you know. 35,000 followers on Twitter, then, you know, I'll invest in this or whatever because mm-hmm. I know that my product will get seen more. Right, yeah. it carries over to the other networks. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not like... By a particular audience. Right. right. And then it's not stapled or, like, to this show. Mm-hmm. They know it can go everywhere. And even, like, some of our advertisers, they'll ask us to post on social so actually, there's the thing I want. I want to get into that a little bit, which is like the whole hustle. Mm-hmm. There's all Ooh. these other things around that aren't just reading the ads or or putting ads into the show. That are the ways that not just podcasts, but all the sort of you know social media monetizes. How, what does that look like? You know, t-shirts, events, like all the stuff. What oh, is it? Oh man, listen. This whole I always joke with Jade. I'm like, podcasting is a scam because <laughs> <laughs> like it's literally the hustle. It's it's you have to. Uh, literally find ways to make money if you want this to be successful like jade and i we released a book mm-hmm. um which is really just the both of us joking around doing a story each week by week not knowing what each other's writing and we released a book and made a bunch of money off of it mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> good old trash novel <laughs> yeah exactly um we just released new merchandise mm-hmm. uh we have a patreon mm-hmm. um when when we first started out, Jade Jade usually gets to the money first before I do, and I just pay people. I have a family. Yeah. <laughs> so Jade will find some things like, oh, we could do this as another means of source of income. I remember our first live show, we um, you Jade found a liquor sponsor or whatever, so that way we could upcharge tickets. It it was crazy, mm-hmm. but like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's some of the, we- the ways, like, we have to legit find any type of way to um, make some money. So it sounds to me like y'all are, like, artists signed to a 360 deal, but you're the 360. Yeah. You're doing all the yeah. work yourself, right? Yeah. Essentially. So we started off very grassroots. We're still very grassroots. Mm-hmm. And it was completely us independent by ourselves, even with the network being involved. And they're not too involved. They're not too involved. Not mm-hmm. to a not to a, um, a point of it being intrusive, but also not where they're negligent. Like they mm-hmm. handle our advertising and then we handle everything else for ourselves. But they're not booking a venue for an event if you no. guys do a live show. All of that yeah. is us. Like we do all of that ourselves. Every last drop of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot of work. That's a lot. <laughs> a lot of it's work. a lot of work. But it's cool because you get to engage with your your listeners and your mm-hmm. audience and you're able to bring that to 
other smaller markets where, you know, they might not have as much stuff going on. So they want to come out. They want to party with you when they want to kick it with you. Mm. I'm a good time. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> and, it makes, and it makes the community more real. It makes the connection more yeah, real. Absolutely. So it's nice that it's the thing that drives the money is the thing that drives the sort of the, the authenticity. Of yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes it makes a better podcast, too, because it makes you really give a shit about what you're doing too. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a job and we joke like, oh, this is so much work. They gotta ah. Uh. But it's <laughs> it's literally like we appreciate it more because mm-hmm. it's ours and nobody's really telling us what to do and we mm-hmm. can craft anything and every anything that we want to do in our own time too. Mm-hmm. Which is really, really good. It's almost different than other creative industries because you as creators, what you do to make money seems to help tie you deeper into the work you want to be doing and deeper into your audience and sort of paying more attention to them mm-hmm. as opposed to, yeah. I mean, it might be a distraction sometimes, but it doesn't seem like it's as much of attention as it might be in, in other industries. I really love what I'm doing because I, so ultimately, you know what I do during the day, but I'm a chef. I have mm-hmm. two catering companies. I have a family. So like this kind of platform is really, really cool because it allows me, like I said, to be able to connect with those listeners. But like I talk, we talk about food. We talk about food all the time. We're mm-hmm. like two two greedy ass bitches and people love it they're like you guys talk food porn and now what i can do is i can curate these dinner parties Mm. and i can sell tickets to these dinner parties and people get to have the experience that i get to speak about to all over the people all over the country and and also in other countries and you bring your and you bring your worlds and i bring the little worlds together and it it works yeah same same for me i came from the blogging world and started out of youtube and then without the show i for the from the show, I ended up doing a TED talk, and and everything else has been growing so far. And I think that's the cool part of this show. It's just like I can do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> so the freedom right. is the thing. The, the freedom. freedom, yeah. And and you know, a lot of times people are like they want to be entrepreneurs and stuff. But I mean, folks need to understand it is hard work, but it is rewarding work when it is your own. All right. I think on that note, that is a good point for us to end on. Jade, XD, thank you so much for joining us on Thank Function. you for having thank us. Thank you for, for having us. Letting a little raggedy up in your studio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whacking it up over at Vox. <laughs> so I got to admit, I started out a little bit skeptical about this whole take on podcasting ads because once you've heard the same ads for Squarespace and Casper and all the same advertisers, you start to roll your eyes. But the truth of it is, I've heard that this is actually a much more human medium. Even though there's technology inserting ads into our podcasts, it's nowhere near as invasive or tracking us as much as the ads that follow us around the rest of the web. And for creators, we heard that they have a little bit more control and independence. They can put a little bit more thought into the advertisements that show up on their show. And that might make their shows a little better, a little bit more personal and human. And that can only be good news for those of us that listen to podcasts. In all, I was surprised to find out that I really think ads and podcasts are a lot more thoughtful and interesting than ads in almost any other medium. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our engineers are Srinivas Ramamurthy and Jarrett Floyd. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. And big thanks to the entire team at Glitch. You can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash. And of course, you can always check out Function at glitch.com function. So please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. 
And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Keeping up with your competition is important. Taking the lead with unmatched innovation, that is impressive. And that's what's possible when you build your next generation of smart apps on Microsoft Azure. Clear the way for unparalleled productivity with end-to-end development and management tools. Integrate cloud capabilities across your environment with the only consistent hybrid cloud. Discover transformative insights through artificial intelligence and real-time data, and scale across more global regions than you'll get from any other cloud provider. Because every business and every organization, whether small or large, old or new, has something to gain by reaching beyond the limits of an on-premise data center. What will you achieve when you come to the cloud? Get started with a free account and 12 months of popular services at azure.com slash trial. A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash trial. This episode is brought to you by Valley of the Boom from National Geographic. The all-new six-part limited series follows the stories of three companies trying to change the world through technology during Silicon Valley's unprecedented tech boom of the 1990s. From the first browser wars to the story of a car artist on the run from the FBI who reinvents himself as a tech entrepreneur, these are the true stories of how the web was won. Valley of the Boom premieres Sunday, January 13th at 9, 8 central, only on National Geographic. Don't miss it.